for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Tell everyone the word you love to hate, John T. <laughs> Hospitalitarian. <laughs> it's rather Baroque and rather ridiculous, I think. It's not really to my taste. You're right about that, Melissa. Um, but but it begs explanation. It, it, it references someone who takes very seriously their job of taking care of others. Somebody who's excellent at that job. Yeah. So it's useful if bothersome. So I walked into a restaurant a couple nights ago. No one was at the host stand. The phone was ringing. I stood there for about three minutes before the hostess arrived, and she answered the phone before greeting me. I know this pain. I've felt this pain. (laughs) So it's a place I like and a place I'll return to, but I'll do it in spite of that experience, not because of it. So what you're saying is there was no hospitalitarian on duty? Exactly. And absent hospitality, the deep, honest, and welcoming kind, what good can come of dining out? If it's just the food, get takeout. If it's just the atmosphere, go for a drink. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. For this episode of Gravy, Sarah Brooke Curtis introduces us to one of the finest hospitalitarians, let's call her a host, in the restaurant industry. My hero, your hero, Joanne Clevenger. In the 36 years that Joanne Clevenger has owned Upperline Restaurant in Uptown New Orleans, she's made sure to connect with every single guest. At 79 and a half years old, she's spent almost her entire adult life enthusiastically serving people. I've probably put my hand on the table and said hello to three quarters of a million people. That's a lot of people. Everything I'd read about Joanne painted her as a queen of hospitality. I knew she always wore her Girl Scout pin as a reminder to be strong and kind, regardless of bad Yelp reviews and other challenges. I knew that she wore the same outfit every night, a red and black number, which I later learned she owns nine identical versions of. I knew that her restaurant was full of art, her own personal collection, a reflection of the New Orleanian spirit. But I wanted to watch her in action, to experience firsthand what it was like inside of a culinary institution where the experience of the place seemed to be inseparable from the person running the show. Isn't that great? I'm sitting at a table, which I later find out is one of Joanne's favorites. I'm eating one of her classic appetizers, Oyster St. Claude. The dish begins with juicy gulf oysters, battered with corn flour and delicately fried. The sauce is rich with butter, an obscene amount of garlic, paprika, parsley, hot sauce, lemon zest, among other ingredients. I dip my bread into the extra sauce, and she comes over to tell me how people complain about New Orleans bread, but that it's plain for a reason, because it needs to quietly support the sopping up of flavorful sauces. She bops over multiple times throughout my meal to offer the backstory of a dish, to swoon with me over a combination of flavors, to point out a specific piece of art. Every detail on the menu and in the restaurant is intentional, like the music, which is low, almost imperceptible, but perfectly moody. Music, I don't want to be dominant, and I would like for it mostly to reflect the spirit of our city, 
You know, I don't want honky-tonk Nashville sounds. I want sounds that someone might hear if they're sitting out on their balcony or on their front porch with WWOZ playing in the background or that single trumpet player around the block. I notice the overhead fans are on despite it being a cool night. They're spinning very slowly to where it almost feels set more for the mood. I ask her about it and her eyes light up. She leans in to quietly whisper that it's a stage set, that it's just for aesthetic sensuality. And the lighting? I I want the lighting in the restaurant to make people feel good and look good. I don't want it to be harsh, and I don't want it to be without shadows and pools of light. So it's not just ambient flat light. The chandeliers by the bar I bought in a little antique shop in the French Quarter, and they're from about 1918, and I, I, I treasure them. Joanne moves around the room with purpose. Her head with her signature high bun leads the way and her body follows. She has on her red shoes and the black and red outfit. Everything she does is with conviction and a little grit. Spunk and grace, mischief and sweetness, oscillating on her face at all times. Every interaction I witness is punctuated with a laugh. I overhear a guest ask Joanne how she's doing and she says, good if you are. She shakes the hands of so many diners and every so often shares a hug with a regular. In addition to checking in with all of her tables at the end of the meal, Joanne hands over a green piece of paper entitled, An Evolving List of Some of Our Favorites with an Idiosyncratic Slant by Joanne Clevenger. Front to back, it's chock full of type suggestions of ways to experience the things that she loves in New Orleans. Places in the city with sweet smells is one category. Favorites at some of our favorite restaurants is another. There's a pistachio croissant at Gracious Bakery, a crawfish grilled cheese at Revel, and an alligator bolognese at Le Petit Grocery, to name a few. It's like a treasure map. She even enthusiastically outlines a particular favorite she thinks I might like. The Kitchen Witch Bookshop. This guide is one more way Joanne expresses a style of hospitality that is entirely her own. I think sometimes Southern hospitality has been corrupted into being good manners and a lace tablecloth and lace curtains on the windows and maybe a couple of hunting dogs on the front porch and a fancy station wagon out front, but that's not what Southern hospitality is about. That's what being rich and lording it over other people is about. And Southern hospitality has to be do with kindness, kindness toward not just your kinfolk. Of course, you've got to be kind to your kinfolk, but you've got to be kind to strangers also. Oh, let me let you say hello to the kitchen, though. Yeah, okay. Please? Yes, of course. After my meal, Joanne insists that I meet the kitchen staff. As she introduces me to each employee, she tells me a bit about his or her roles and strengths. And Todd does all the saute over here. Peter's on the grill. Ladarius does a deep fry. Awesome. I love the habanero. I love the habanero sauce. I told you you were a chili man. I appreciate it. Before Joanne opened Upper Line, she waited tables and owned a vintage clothing store, so service was nothing new to her but she swears she didn't set out to become a restaurateur. You know, I opened the restaurant accidentally. I wasn't planning to, but I accidentally discovered this little part of the building was for sale. And my first thought was, I could open a restaurant. It was a bankrupt barbecue restaurant. It was ugly. 
I persuaded my husband, the engineer, to take a second mortgage on our house. I persuaded my son to quit his job as a chef in the French Quarter. My daughter, Morgan, came and helped us too. And we did it. We opened January 83, Upper Line Restaurant. Jason Clevenger was the chef. And I am the maitre d'es and general manager, Joanne Clevenger. It's a few hours before dinner service begins, and I'm sitting with Joanne in her office. It's packed with books, photographs, paintings, and stacks of files. She's multitasking, helping an employee find some masking tape, enthusiastically rattling off a story about one of her old favorite chefs, and then stopping to answer the phone, which rings often. She doesn't miss a beat. Good. How are you doing today? That's okay. Is she doing all right? Oh, 87th. Wow. <laughs> I'll cancel and thank you for calling. And no, no, that's fine. And please give her my regards and a happy birthday. You're welcome. Bye bye. Joanne grew up poor and went to 11 different schools before graduating from high school. Her father's work as a highly skilled mechanic took them to nine different small towns in Louisiana and Arizona. Because she moved so often, she could never hold on to belongings or friends. She sees her resilience and packed office full of sentimental memorabilia as a direct response to her childhood. Joanne was not always so gregarious. She was a shy and bookish kid who would rather be sewing than mingling. She had trouble pronouncing words, but started imitating national radio announcers to get better at it. When she started waitressing, she became much more comfortable with people, and she loved learning how to make people happy through service. When I first opened, the people in this neighborhood, uptown New Orleans, were disappointed that I didn't have a dress code. They wanted it to be more exclusive with people who wore jackets and ties and no sandals and certainly no punk hairdos. One night, I'll never forget, there was a man here in sort of a typical (laughs) uptown, elegant gentleman's casual dress. And this young couple came in. And, And he had a mohawk hairdo. And she had on some absurd outfit. I happened to be standing by his table. And he looked at me and he said, Joanne, why do you let people like that in here? I said, why don't you watch them while they eat? Just keep an eye on them and see what you think when they get ready to leave. And he did. And he said, Joanne, you've made me see it differently. And I think it's not just Joanne doing it, but it's seeing people that are different from yourselves, enjoying themselves in a restaurant, maybe not as rich, not as educated, Maybe more educated, more academic, but it makes us aware of accepting each other. When we come back, our reporter, Sarah Brooke Curtis, goes behind the bar and the kitchen door with Joanne to meet the folks who channel her vision to make joy nightly. But first... Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. 
Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell them Gravy Said Hey! Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza, and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico but I was raised in West Local, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, Look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. Joanne's hospitality and desire to serve goes well beyond her dinner guests. During the time I spent with her, she even mentions paying for some of the funeral costs of an employee's family member. She thinks of Upperline as her corner of the world, a place where she has the opportunity to shine a little light. I did love one little song when I was in some bean band when I was about five years old at the church. My mother was a devout Baptist, and there was this little song about have you, have you ever heard little songs about Jesus and all that? It's, Jesus loves all the little children in the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. One time somebody called me a few months, about a year ago, wanted to know how I got, I, you know, I've had two black chefs. And wanted to know, you know, where I got the ability to not be as prejudiced as other people I grew up with. And I actually sang that little song to him because I think it did influence me. Of course, I mean, I grew up in the middle of segregation. I mean, I went to segregated schools the whole time I was in school. Many of Joanne's employees have been working at Upperline for a decade, sometimes two. Joanne introduces me to Miguel Alonzo Gabriel, a cook, and Gerard Crosby, a bartender, two of her longest-term employees. They've worked at Upperline for 24 and 26 years, respectively. She hired them when they were teenagers. Well, see, see what happened with that was uh, I needed a job, and... The, our bartender here, we was we started out, we was best friends, and we was like walking around the neighborhood, and uh, 
And I said, man, we're like, we tired of being broke. We got we to gotta find a job. So we walked. We kept on passing up a line up because we never seen nobody outside. It's like, man, they're not going to hire us. But uh, we came up a line and Joanne gave us our first shot. You know, and we started off washing dishes together. And, ooh, Miss Joanne had this big old long, big booklet you had to fill out. I did? Yeah, you remember? <laughs> Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah, and we tried to ask you questions. And mm -hmm. What you want to do in the future? With all kind of stuff. Oh yeah, I did have a lot of. Yeah, yeah. So. What do you like to do? That was what, well, like, the only thing I first remember when, you know, I first started, and then uh, it's been it's been good ever since, you know. Well, she gave us an opportunity. Yeah, that's all. That's all we can ask for. She could have turned us on. She could have not told Miguel, because at the time. We had no utilities where I was living. So there was no way for her to get in contact with me. So she told Miguel, to, um, she figured that I, I, I would want to come in, being, being one of his friends, and probably going through a transitional period with a bunch of, um, I guess, just beefing up the staff because it was Jazz Fest when we first started. And then I just took my lucky break and kind of ran with it. Joanne is adamant that the dining experience be restorative. She's very tuned in to the more philosophical reasons that people like to go out to dinner. Well, but you see, I don't believe people are here because they're hungry, usually. I believe they're here because they want to have a good experience. People don't make a reservation six weeks ahead of time because they're hungry. Ideally, you go to a good restaurant or upscale restaurant and you pay money, but most importantly, you pay with your time to have a pleasant experience. And you, if everything goes right, if everything goes well, when you leave the restaurant, your feeling is going to be one of self-enhancement. You might not even recognize that about yourself, but you will feel restored and you will feel better about yourself and about the world because the people in the restaurant have been nurturing you and not just your tummy but your brain and your spirit. And possibly the people at the next table will have contributed to that also. Joanne refers to Upper Lion's style of service, which she's honed in her decades at the restaurant's helm, as friendly, anonymous professionalism. In the beginning, it should be anonymous so that the server is not interjecting their personality into the relationship so much that if that server's not here next time, the guests would be just terribly disappointed. It's a balance. You do the very best you can to make the guests feel wonderful and feel at home and comfortable. But if it goes too far, then it can never be replicated. And so that loses out to the, for the guests the next time they come and you're off in Virginia on holiday. But what about Joanne? No, she's not the chef, but since the beginning, she's been heavily involved in coming up with every single dish. When she tells guests the origin story of what they're eating, it takes on a whole new life. In the 36 years that it's been open, Joanne's been there almost every single night of service. Her energy in the dining room is significant. She didn't plan it this way. In the beginning, she wanted it to be sort of like running her vintage clothing store, where she could be gone to London for six weeks to work on costumes for a play, and everything would go smoothly. She had a maitre d' and someone to help with managerial type things, but... Money was very tight. 
so she decided she had to do it herself. And then it became, over the years, something that the restaurant started centering more and more on myself. And even though I kept trying to push it onto the chef or onto the waiter or to our bartender, we have a great painting of our bartender on the wall. You have to come and see it. So it didn't work too well because I'm in the dining room trying to make everything go smoothly. And then I see something at a table. Maybe the customer's looking like they're not happy or they're, they're feeling, they look wistful. And I want to make them not wistful. I want to satisfy whatever they're yearning for. Joanne's style and her starring role at Upperline is not the norm in the current landscape of trendy restaurants in New Orleans. You know, the front of the house restaurant owner is a dying breed as chefs have become increasingly the face of restaurants and the economics of restaurants have become more difficult. And one of the ways that restaurateurs deal with that is by expanding. She hasn't done that. (laughs) You know, when you expand, it becomes harder for an owner to be the face of the front of the house. That's Brett Anderson. I'm restaurant critic and features writer and reporter at NOLA.com, the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. Brett says that in the last six or seven years, as New Orleans has been gentrifying, restaurants are reflecting the newer demographics and moving away from serving traditional staples like gumbo and shrimp and trout meunier. This shift away from New Orleans classics has actually brought more attention to the city's older institutions like Upperline. And the examples of things that haven't changed have become shinier objects as a result. And she's a very shiny object in that regard. I don't mean that in any disrespectfully. All of which is to say that I think when people go there now, there's a bigger audience who are learning about it in the context of learning about Joanne and therefore, you know, expect an interaction with her. Joanne makes sure to tell Brett when there's someone eating near his table who he should know about. Like when the former publisher of the Times-Picayune was there, and she knew he would want to go over and say hello. She fuels connections and makes the dining experience personal and memorable. And how does Brett account for Upper Line's longevity in a city bursting at the seams with new restaurants? You know, repeat business is a reward for consistency. I do think that the, that the food there, even as chefs have come and gone, has remained remarkably consistent. But, you know, her presence is also a kind of consistency. You know, you can always expect the kind of hospitality you're going to receive when you go there, knowing that she's going to be there. Over the years, Joanne's learned a lot about herself by working with other people. She has some regrets, but she acknowledges that she's managed quite well, despite all the challenges she's had along the way. I didn't used to believe that my actions and my activities had that much effect on other people. I do now, and I wish I'd known it much earlier in my life. We each have different skills and talents. I can't jump very high, and I certainly can't carry a tune very well. But other people might not be able to be as organized as I am in answering the phone. And I think one of the great things about my life has been the joy that it brings to give up previously held opinions and beliefs. Because it means you've learned enough to realize they were wrong. Or haywire. <laughs> it's unfortunately, we don't always learn those when we're young. It takes a while. As I'm getting ready to leave the restaurant, Joanne hands me her favorite cookbook to take with me, Creole Gumbo and All That Jazz by Howard Mitchum. Not surprisingly, it's a book about New Orleans and art and a chef who is triumphant in the face of life's challenges. 
when I ask Joanne how you hand down an institution like hers, she tells me that you can't. That it's like being a boxer or a ballerina. You get one chance to do it right. But while she's at it, she's going to be all in for everyone. I want it to be the best restaurant for people to work in, for people to play and eat in. And so my, my, my job, as I see it, is to keep learning how to be the very best and to have our guests, and, and, and most importantly, the people who work here, have a life that is in balance with the world and that the best restaurant, the best people working here can make the world a better place. That's my goal for all of it. I think as I get older, I'm 79 and a half now, I can't quite believe it. I keep thinking that I'll run out of things I want to do, but I haven't so far. Gravy was reported and produced by Sarah Brooke Curtis. After abstaining from meat for 27 years, she ate a hunk of pork at a California pig roast. I'm betting that pitmaster was Jack Hit, and she never turned back. And other than Sarah, who else do we thank, Melissa Hall? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. And she's damn good at it. Visit southernfoodways.org to watch our short film, Joanne Clevenger, A Girl Scout with Gumption. If you like that film, and I know you will, and if you love this podcast, consider making a donation to SFA. We'd appreciate it. Become a member. Member and donor dollars fund all our work. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us ladle some gravy in your ear. <laughs>